hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another revamped Books with Hook segment in which we're going to have two authors who have submitted their query letters and opening pages on the podcast with us. The first is Jamie and afterwards we'll be joined by Liz. And as per usual, we love having our authors on the podcast with us as it makes it so much more fun and interactive. But before we welcome Jamie, Cece has a shout out she would like to do. Absolutely, yes. I'm excited to shout out to Laura, who has given us permission to use her name. Laura queried me on September 23rd with a commercial women's fiction title. And before I could even read it, another agent scooped her up and signed her. So on October 12th, she sent us a message saying, you know, please disregard my query as I have accepted representation for my work. As agents, we get that all the time. But the wonderful part was that as a side note, she added that she's really grateful to Carly, to Bianca and to myself for the wonderful tips we provide on the shit no one tells you about writing. She credits us with her success. So obviously the success is all yours, Laura. Congratulations to Laura. (laughs) 
We're so happy for you. We love hearing these success stories. So if you have queried us before, or even not, if you're just a podcast listener, please let us know when you have all these great news because we love hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. We love sharing the great news. So keep that coming. Right. Okay. Jamie, welcome to the show today. Would you begin by reading us your query letter? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Dear Carly, I'm a big fan of the shit no one tells you about writing, and I'm excited to share Cleo Off the Tracks, a work of millennial-driven women's fiction complete at 91,000 words. The dual POV novel marries the secrets and family drama of We Came Here to Forget by Andrea Dunlop with the mystery elements and light tone of Where'd You Go, Bernadette by Maria Semple. Cleo Barwick has built her mega-popular YouTube channel on a bold, human-centered approach to travel, amassing legions of devoted followers. When a corporate investor buys her channel, Cleo on the Tracks is bound to break out of YouTube and find mainstream success. For Sadie, Cleo's ambitious young producer, traveling with Cleo is the opportunity of a lifetime. After one season in South America, Sadie can take a job with the company and settle in New York City where an old flame still burns. All she has to do is keep Cleo's wandering spirit on track for their new corporate overlords. When Cleo fails to show up at their final destination and her social media goes dark, Sadie zigzags the Western Hemisphere in search of her friend. As Sadie uncovers the truth about Cleo's oppressive religious past, she chips away at the image of candor and wisdom at the heart of Cleo's online persona. If Cleo is found and her secrets are unpacked, it could put an end to both women's careers and to the friendship they've built on the tracks. I studied creative writing at Washington State University and currently work as a nonprofit communications guru where I write, strategize, and post memes in support of schools. When I'm not writing, working, or chasing my toddler, you can find me hunting the Seattle beer scene for a great stout or sour, or looking for an adventure with my husband, son, and rescue pup, Aon. I'm an active member of the PNWA and WFWA. Thank you so much for your consideration and have a great day. Jamie Sheets, she, her. Awesome, Jamie. Thanks so much. That was wonderful. Carly, why don't you mosey on in and tell us what you think about that query letter? Thank you so much, Jamie, for offering your work up for us to critique for the betterment of yourself and obviously all the people listening. So we're so thankful that you're that you're putting yourself out there. And I think this is an incredibly interesting topic. One of the things this made me think about was, and I feel like I've talked about this book all the time, but I don't know if you read One to Watch. I don't know if you read that book, but it has a really good relationship between a main character and a producer that I think that, you know, maybe not be, might not be a comp, but I was just going to mention it because it also made me think of like a good like friendship, like working friendship story as well. So I thought that potentially could be a comp if you want to comp that friendship at all. But the comps here were one of my lovely clients, Andrea Dunlop, we came here to forget, which, you know, I really do think works in this case. I, I know we talk on the podcast, like really should you comp a client? But this book is about somebody traveling and, you know, obviously you've read, um, you've read this book, so you get it. And for anybody that's listening, that's thinking about comping an agent client, just make sure you do read the book and it does work in this case. And I, I do think it works in this case. So my first note here was this is called a millennial driven women's fiction. So I'm almost wondering, like, is this Gen Z? Like millennials, like we're starting to get old now, millennials. Like we're, we're getting up, we're nearing 40, I think this millennial age group. So I didn't know if this really was like true millennial or whether this was Gen Z. That was just one of my questions. But I love the, you know, YouTube is obviously a, a huge, a huge space where there's lots of influencers. And I think there hasn't been a ton that's explored in this space. So I do think that's unique. I didn't know what human-centered approach to travel meant. I didn't know exactly what those words meant. I didn't know if that meant like more like influencer-driven or um, I just wasn't really sure what those words meant. So obviously, you know, in a query, every word matters. So um, I just didn't, I couldn't quite pinpoint what that meant. And then this brings me to the travel element. So because of COVID and nobody really traveling, there's, I have, I'm a couple, I'm of a couple minds about this. Number one, it's a tough topic because nobody is really traveling. But number two, we do want to live vicariously through books and through 
travel. And so this is an opportunity for people to virtually or in their minds, you know, through the text travel. So I think you might find agents on either side of this coin. I'm not sure what side of the coin I'm on. For me, it depends on like the book, right? So everything obviously depends on depends on great books. So it could be a tough topic. I'm just kind of planting that seed that for somebody that might be a tough topic. There was one little example of like a really passive voice. You had a line that says, all she has to do is keep Cleo's wandering spirit instead of like has to, like must, you know, something a bit more urgent there would probably be a better a better choice of word. But then this brings me to our last body paragraph, which all of a sudden our main character goes missing. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, excuse me, um, why is this hook buried at the bottom? So I think we need to move all of that up because I'm assuming this is a big part of the book and the stakes that are obviously involved with somebody going missing. Number one, we want to figure out what happened to this main character. Number two, our producer character, obviously her entire career depends on this talent making, you know, doing her job, right? So there's so many stakes involved with this. And so if this is like a life or death stakes or this is a the producer, you know, for death stakes for her career like that those are huge huge stakes and to me that was just really buried in the bottom so i think we need to flip that up to the top because the first two paragraphs are relatively lighthearted, which again isn't a problem if that's the tone of your book but i just felt like by the time we got to our third paragraph our tone had, sl- had shifted slightly and the comps make way more sense now you know once we're like oh somebody's missing somebody's trying to be not found depending on how you want to position that and so i would just figure out a way to just plunk this up higher or make sure this hook is really clear at in the first in the first paragraph so that we know just how important the stakes are because I think you've crafted something really interesting but I just think you buried the lead here a little bit so I would bump that up and your author bio paragraph is great I know there is a really really rich writing scene in the Pacific Northwest and in Seattle which is so many great resources there and I'm a huge fan of Women's Fiction Writers Association I think they do great um, great work so uh, it's a strong query just kind of like plunk our hook up at the top so you don't your lead. Cece, was there anything that Carly didn't cover that you'd like to quickly add to that? Very quickly. I There's a sentence that says, if Cleo is found and her secrets are unpacked, it could put an end to both women's careers. Is the unpacked intentional, like with the suitcase element? Because I thought that exposed would be a bit more active and a bit more dramatic, especially since you're telling me that if these secrets are exposed or unpacked or whatever, both Cleo and Sadie might be in trouble. But if Sadie's the only one who's finding out about the secrets, all she has to do is keep quiet. So I guess my question is, if there's more of a pressure cooker situation, if it's more like the secrets will be exposed whether she wants to or not because X, Y, Z, I would just want that to be clarified. It is a very minor thing. It's just that Carly gives this comprehensive review of everything. So all I have to do is be like, yeah, there's just one word that I would change. Awesome. Cece, thank you. Jamie, would you like to respond to that? Sure. Yeah. So the reason I call it millennial driven um, is just because it like Cleo is older. Cleo's around 35 and Sadie is young on the younger end, around 25 of like that, that spectrum. So it is, it is more since it's Cleo's story, I call it millennial driven. And since agents are have been asking for that, that's kind of where I've been trying to position it. And by human centered approach, I think I just mean like she, she's really, she's meeting people like local people and, and she, like telling their story. She's a storyteller and that's how she uses her channel. So maybe that's a better way to put it. So I appreciate that feedback. Yeah, I would say like that seems almost more like journalistic as opposed to influencer. So maybe positioning her as more of like, how is she different than everybody else, right? That's what we want to know about our main character. So she's not just an influencer. She's a more, she's more investigative or, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would just, yeah, f- find a different way to say that. Social anthropologist, like humans of New York, but for the world. Sure. Yeah. 
That's another great comp, so put it in there. Um, uh, Jamie, in terms of the unpacked thing, I had to agree with Cece there in your choice of words because unpacking secrets and exposing, to me, unpacking secrets means that that person has agency to be unpacking them and they themselves are revealing them, whereas exposing it feels like an outside sort of force. So could could you reply to that for us? Sure, yeah. So the secrets are really... Um they go to the heart of Cleo's identity and there's, there's a part of herself that she's just never accepted or been. it's like really hard to talk about without spoiling it, but you know, she's, it, it'll end her career as well if she really comes to term with these secrets. And so I think the unpacked was, I was trying to play with the language there, but if exposed makes more sense, then I'm, I'm totally on board. I've actually, um, like when I'm pitching it in like pitch contests, it's, I, I don't talk about a suitcase. I talk about her fanny pack full of secrets as a sort of like, there's, she has a whole thing about fanny packs um, and it's kind of funny and people respond to it well. I think that for the query, I think exposed makes more sense. So I think that's a good note. You know, one hook that I really like, I like the idea of a millennial and a Gen Z. Because mm-hmm. yeah. that was me back in school. Like when I went back to school, I, all my classmates were Gen Z. And I thought it makes no difference. It's just like, you know, 10, 13 years. It makes all the difference. So I think that's a really cool hook. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of editors, once they're at the position of editor, the position to acquire, most of them are millennials. There's not as many Gen Z acquiring editors. So I think a lot of editors will relate to the gap. Okay. Perhaps the editorial assistants or or the assisting editors might might be Gen Z and they might do the, do the first read. So. I don't know. Kind of like Hacks is doing with like a boomer and a Gen Z, but like millennial and Gen Z. I just think that's cool. Okay, cool. Wonderful, Jamie. Why don't you give us an overview of what was in those opening pages? Sure. Yeah. So we chapter one opens in Cleo's point of view and she's in a bathroom. She's hanging sheets and blankets on the walls to sort of insulate the sound coming from outside so that she can record voiceover for her latest video. But she's thinking, I don't want to be doing this. Like I'm not in the right mindset. I don't feel this is and feel natural, but she starts doing it anyway. And she starts talking about Torres del Paine and Patagonia. First, she's just describing them for her viewers, but it kind of devolves into a little monologue about loneliness um, and how loneliness protects and preserves these places because they're inaccessible and that keeps them safe. And then once her monologue is done, she's just like, I know this is I don't know what you're going to make of this, Sadie, but um, I'm sure you'll figure it out. And then she goes to the door to retrieve her large Hawaiian pizza, which is the thing she's missed most in all her years of travel. And then we move to Sadie's chapter, and she is sitting on a hammock on a beach in Colombia trying to relax. But she has just reviewed the footage that Cleo sent over, and she's baffled because it's not the tone that they were going for. Yeah, it just adds to her stress because Cleo was supposed to meet her in Colombia two days ago, and she never showed up. And and now she's worried that their production partner is going to freak out and the scene end or the, the five pages ends when the, she gets a phone call from her production company. Awesome. Who Who is our little friend there in the background? That's Aowen. She's grumpy. She's got, she's got opinions and we love women with opinions. I want to see her. I just care about the fur babies. Oh, oh, my, my, my big furry monster. Awesome. Okay, Akali, <laughs> why don't you tell us what you thought of those opening pages? Oh, right. Here we go. Here we go with the honesty. I don't think we're starting in the right place. <laughs> 
we'll just get right to it. I love this concept. It's not a matter of like me not liking the concept. It's a matter of, are we using our very important real estate effectively, right? And so I was a bit confused by the choice of language because you said, I've I've transformed the bathroom into a stage set for a hostage video. And when we left the query, we were thinking, oh, maybe there's some not sinister behavior, but like, you know, we, ha- we have a mystery coming. And so I was thinking she's literally like recording her video to be like, hey, I'm piecing out now. And then when we went into a really long monologue, I was like, oh, you know, the wind just came out of my sails a little bit, you know? And it's not that you're doing anything uninteresting. It's just the execution and the choices that you made here. I just don't think are serving this project as best as they could be. So I would just reposition, you know, the way that you're trying to accomplish this. You know, are you trying to, and obviously I have you here so you can answer these questions, but are you trying to set up the fact that she's burnt out? Are you trying to set up the fact that she's back? I'm assuming she's back in North America because she's talking about getting her, her big Hawaiian pizza. So she's clearly not where she was recording. Like she's not in the place where she was recording about, right? She's probably back in North America getting this huge pizza. And also Hawaiian pizza is an interesting type of person. So you're clearly trying to tell us something about this Hawaiian pizza choice. So I ended up just more confused than clear. And I think when we're trying to meet our main character, I, I, I'm so conflicted about this because I know you're trying to create this interesting dichotomy about her and tell her tell us something about her that we need to know. But I was just so unclear in terms of what you were trying to tell us about her. And then with Sadie, we're introduced and the scene is like, what am I supposed to make of this material that she sent me? And so I found this also hard because we don't know what is expected yet. So we don't know what is good and what is bad. Like we can't assign a feeling to this yet because we don't know what is normal. And then you have a, uh, something about like, she hasn't shown up. She's uh, she's two days late. It's not like two weeks late. And if you're expecting somebody on a production schedule, like two days matters, two hours matter, right? And so the fact that two days isn't worth worrying about still seems worrying to me. <laughs> Maybe you need to tell me like why we don't or why we're not worrying about two days obviously two days when you're traveling in remote places like there's so many hiccups in terms of travel if there's like one flight out you know if you miss that flight then you're screwed for a couple days so I get that I just I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be worried about and what as a reader I'm supposed to be anxious about and what as a reader I'm supposed to be concerned about and I just for some reason couldn't pinpoint how I was supposed to feel and as the author it's you know your job to kind of handhold us through this process in a way that you know is literary and escapist but I just wasn't sure how I was supposed to feel and I just kind of wanted you to lead me a little bit more than you did. But I do like that we get both characters in these first five pages. I think that's really important to kind of keep things moving along. So that's my take. And feel free to answer any questions that I left out there for you. Um, Sure. Yeah. So the, the thing I really struggled with is like, where is she? <laughs> right? Like I'm basically writing this first half of the book. In the first draft, it had hardly any actual, it didn't have very many Cleo chapters at all because it was just Sadie reviewing footage to sort of like figure out where she was. And I didn't feel like that was working. So the goal in this first chapter was just to sort of, you know, I dropped a few clues that she wasn't where she was, where she said that she was, but I have been worried about just, she's sitting in a room by herself doing a monologue. Um, I felt like it broke the rules, but I was, I'm just not sure where to. Yeah. I almost feel like you have to break the fourth wall in a different way. Like you have to be like, she set up at the fourth seasons she called for her she called for her Hawaiian pizza and like 
now she's pretending, you know, tell us that she's pretending, you know, like tell us that she's putting on this mask. I think that would maybe be helpful. Okay. I just want to jump in and say, I love that idea about the telling, telling that she's pretending. Sounds Yeah. Yeah. And just explaining the masquerade a little bit more because it's still interesting. Right. And I think you just kind of got to let that scene be a little bit more and just show us a little bit more of like what's happening so we can kind of be there with her. Right. Because I think that distance you're creating keeps us so distant from her and we don't want to feel distant from her. We want to feel connected to her. So we've all wanted to escape and set up at the Four Seasons with our favorite pizza and pretend we're somewhere we're not, you know, and I think we can relate to that. So maybe lean into that. That makes sense. Thank you. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that? I actually have a question. How far along are you in this? Like, have you, are you done with the project? Are you querying? Where are you in the writing stage? Yeah, I sent out a couple of rounds of queries. And I mean, the response has been pretty good. I've, I think 20 queries and like nine requests, eight or nine That's requests. That's great. That's really good. That's awesome. Yeah, That's awesome. so I it, it feels good, but I've, I've started to get some rejections. And so I just want to- And um, have and you I, ever had a different beginning for this? Or was no. this always the beginning? So one thing I will say, and this is just a rule of thumb, right? Like it really depends on the situation. Great openings almost always emerge through revision. Like it's, it's typically you have to tweak your opening. It's really rare that you get it right the first time because the themes in your novel, they emerge as you're writing. So even if you have this great like aha moment in the beginning where you're like, I'm so inspired. This is how I start. Typically there's an even better way to do it. So I would just, you know, pretend like you're going to write this novel for the first time today. Like you're going to literally sit down, butt in chair, first time ever. And you know, all the story already, you're like a plotter, not a pantser. How would you begin it? And it can't be the same scene. Maybe play that game with yourself. Because I I like that idea that that Carly suggested of really leaning into the whole pretending angle, like being being open about it. Yeah. And and just for Jamie and for our listeners as well, often you'll sell a manuscript to a publisher and then have to revise the beginning with them anyway, after you've revised it many, many times. So there's no end to that. Jamie, do you have questions for Carly and Cece? Um, I think that you answered all my, my most urgent questions were about, you know, how do I start a book where the protagonist is missing? So I I like the idea of sort of um, leaning into that, you know, just sort of holding the reader's hand a little bit and letting them know that she's, she's pretending. Because Um, we already know that she's missing, right? So I think you can lean into her like, yeah, just having her moment at the Four Seasons or wherever she is, or like stockpiling some of her favorite things so she can like escape for a bit, or I don't know, just figuring out, like, let us walk through how she's going to get herself off the grid a little bit. I don't know. I think there's something fun that we can feel like we're part of the game. Okay, cool. Thank you. And when you get good news, tell us and we'll celebrate with you. (laughs) Sounds good. Thank you so much, you guys. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you for coming. That many full requests is amazing. So you're already off to an amazing That's a really good ratio for sure. Yeah. And I think if you put that hook up at the top of the query too, I think you'll get even more to be honest with you. Okay, great. That's that's really (laughs) valuable advice. Thank you. Bye, Jamie. Jamie. All right. So that was Jamie. And now we're moving on to our second author today, who's Liz. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Right. So will you uh, read your query letter for us? Yeah, absolutely. Dear Cecilia Lira, I'm a massive fan of the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast and appreciate how generous you are in sharing feedback and ideas. The Hardest Life to Save is a thriller complete at 80,000 words with one of those morally ambiguous protagonists you love who's wrestling with feminist issues. It combines the fast-paced political tension of Chris Horty's deep state with the intimate intensity of Paula Hawkins' A Slow Fire Burning and will appeal to readers who enjoy seeing people in power held accountable for who they are and who they pretend to be. 
15 years ago, Mel was sexually abused by the man who is now President of the United States. She's worked hard to forget that night, marrying strong, safe David and becoming an acclaimed doctor. But when David becomes head of the Secret Service, the nightmares start, and Mel can't shake the idea of getting revenge on the president. Distracted, her career is failing, and David, ignorant of her past, feels more distant than ever. Then, while at a summit in Banff, Canada, the president is injured in a freak accident, and the White House summons Mel to his bedside. As pressure mounts to keep him alive, Mel discovers she isn't the president's only victim. Revenge is in reach, and she thinks she could get away with it, but could she keep it hidden from David, and will it finally stop the nightmares? In my day job, I'm a ghostwriter, editor, and book coach. I've ghosted 16 nonfiction books and edited countless others. I've previously worked in public relations and journalism. Although originally from the UK, I now live in the Canadian Rocky Mountains near where this story takes place. Thank you for your consideration, Liz Green. Wonderful, Liz. Thanks so much for that. Cece, this was directed at you. So why don't you tell us what you thought of that query letter? Query letter is great. And it's even better when Liz reads it because you have such a nice voice, Liz. Like, let's take a (laughs) moment to please appreciate this wonderful voice. So (laughs) thank you. Loved the first paragraph. You gave me title, word count, genre, comps. Absolutely excellent. I have zero notes. It was just really, really good. Plot paragraphs. That's the thing I always fixate on. Uh, I actually have questions and I love that you're here. So they're in Banff, right? And then the president is injured and the White House summons Mel to the president's bedside. Like, is this my question? And I don't think this is a spoiler because this is like the inciting incident almost. Well, not really, but whatever. Yeah. Is it inexplicably like, is the White House confused as to why they are calling this woman or are they calling her because she's a renowned doctor and like, she's the only one who can like what I I need more explanation on that before I can continue my notes. Yeah. They're calling her because she is um, top of her field, trauma neurosurgeon. The president gets a concussion. They don't want Canadians to be treating their guy. They want to call in their own people. They know Mel through her connection with her husband and they know she's top of her field. So they want the best doctor they can get and they want someone they can trust and they bring her in. And is David at all involved in this? Like in like, for example, is it a scene where like, oh my God, the president's injured. We need a doctor we can trust. And David's like my wife or someone goes, David, your wife. Like, is that a situation or does he not even know about it until she gets there? Yeah. Somebody, uh, the chief of staff says, David, your wife, she's the best, right? And David's like, no, no, no. My wife doesn't need to be here. And they're like, but she's the best. Let's bring her in. Why does he say she doesn't need to be there? Because he knows? He doesn't know. There's um a lot of marital conflict. Ah. Marriage isn't in a good place. He doesn't want her in his Liz, I almost don't want to give you advice because if you get if I give you advice, you're gonna make it so much better and you're gonna get all these <laughs> bites and I want this for me. But I'm gonna be a good person. You are totally burying all these good this good stuff here, okay? Like the fact that she's a trauma doctor and that she's being called because of her profession. Like I didn't know if she was just called inexplicably. I have this note inexplicably, or does it make sense in the story next to the, that line? So just clarify that. Like find a way to clarify that because it's really important. And also weave in the marital problems because as my second note, I was like, well, what's going on in the present day to really build the pressure cooker situation? And the marital problems just add to that. So that's absolutely excellent. I guess that actually sets up because I, you know, as I was reading the the, the line, revenge is in reach um, and up until the point where you say, and will it finally stop the nightmares? I was like, well, I really wanted something more in the present day because the best revenge stories have present day twists that ramp up the stakes. It's not just about getting revenge, but rather like I want to get revenge, but then because of the setup in the present day, 
things are even more complicated, but you already have that because you have David's job and then you have the marital conflicts and you have the fact that she is his doctor. So now the opening scene makes so much more sense. Uh, now everything's coming together in my head. It's So yes, you, you please, please, like you're not doing yourself any favors. You're doing me a big favor, but you're not doing yourself any favors by, by burying all these great aspects of your, of your novel. So yeah, this is really good. Okay. Holly, did you have any feedback that you wanted to add to that? There was just a couple things that I had questions about. One of them was, and I don't know if I missed it. I'm kind of like scanning as I talk here about the POV. Do we, are we always in the same POV or are we jumping heads? What is the POV situation? Yeah, it's just Mel's POV. Okay. Person. Okay. And then my next thing about the query is I feel like the way that you've written it, and I think this is what Cece's getting at, is I think the way that you've written it comes off like there might be too many coincidences. And I'm always so itchy about coincidences because they're just easy, right? And I just hate them. So I'm like, I, I don't think that you are relying on coincidences, but the way that you write it, it makes it seem like you might be. I um, mean, one of my favorite, one of my favorite lines, and I love if anybody has not read these before, but um, Pixar has these 22 rules for storytelling. And one of their rules for storytelling is coincidences to get characters into trouble are great. Coincidences to get them out of it are cheating. And that's just one of my favorite lines. So if you are, if there are any coincidences here, because there is a lot of like travel and access to high ranking figures and things like that. Remember, we only want coincidences to get them into the trouble. We don't want coincidences to get them out of trouble. So I think that's an important thing because it seems like she has access to somebody that is um, very high ranking, obviously, and the, uh, the president, right? And then her husband, has access and then she has access through this but I think you really need to play up how important she is and how how good she is at her job and how she how she's important right because you're talking about the president of the United States and you know her husband David head of the secret service but you just you know you do say she's an acclaimed doctor but I think you really need to play up how important she is and how good she is at her job because I'm one I'm, I'm feeling like she's coming third in terms of the ranking of importance in terms of people on this page so really play up her her expertise yeah what she said what she said yes damn americans who don't want canadian doctors treating them damn them right uh okay liz so will you now uh, give us an overview of your opening pages yeah we start with a prologue um it's one page and it's a note to someone saying within these pages is my story please forgive me i'm sorry um once you've read this you'll know what to do with it that pulitzer prize is yours and it's signed off from mel then we go into chapter one. Mel is in a hospital. She's treating her patient, Samir. And they're kind of having a jokey, lighthearted conversation. But Samir's saying that he's tired. He's done with life. He wants to end it. And she, they talk about a do not resuscitate order. She tells him he has to sign some paperwork. Then we flash forward a few months. Samir is crashing. Mel's looking for the DNR paperwork. She can't find it. The daughter's begging Mel to let Samir die. And Mel decides to resuscitate him. And she brings him back. And then the daughter is giving her shit for going against what she knew were Samir's real wishes. And then we've got the first paragraph of chapter two, where Mel returns home and in her head, she's bitching about her husband being away at work again. And that's our five pages. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take on them? I feel like there's a pattern where I begin my critiques by asking writers if they've read a certain work. And it's just it's embarrassing, but it's how my mind works. Have you read The Push? The Push? No, I haven't. Okay, you have to. Okay. Shout out to Ashley, who's a fan of the podcast. Hi, Ashley. She has reached out on social media to let us know she likes the podcast, and she'll actually be on it in January when uh, when she has something else coming out. So yeah, Cece, carry on with that. I need that arc. 
Ashley, I need that arc of your next book. I love the push. Okay. The reason why I'm talking about the push, it has nothing to do with your novel. It's a totally different theme, totally different everything. But tonally, when I started reading your prologue, I started getting POV vibes that were similar to the push. And I think that it would be, it would elevate your story and it would give it much needed voiciness and an eeriness and atmosphere. Because you have great plot, you have great writing, so many great things here. But I do think that we could use some some extra, you know, sprinkling of, of seasoning if you were to write this in hybrid second person. The push is written in hybrid second person. It's essentially, it starts with the main character watching her her husband, his new wife, her daughter, and their son in a house, right? And the, the windows are open or not the windows, but the curtains or whatever. And she is there to deliver her account of what happened, essentially like her pages. I don't think you should change that. I think that this letter works really well. But if you were to write the whole thing in this hybrid second person, it would elevate the story so much in terms of moodiness, in my opinion. I don't mean to suggest that the husband needs to be centered in the story. That is not what happens in the push, by the way. I do mean to suggest that it would center her account of things or else remove the prologue. Only because I... Like, it's really interesting what you're telling me, like that he's going to win the Pulitzer Prize, right? Like based on, 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 on the, on what she's like, her account of things. That's really cool. And I do like the fact that she's explaining herself so that we know that she's, she's okay at the end. So I, I also like that, but I, I just think that you're sort of like teasing with a, with a, a style and a hook, but then not really, you know, following through. So I would, I would look into it because I, I kept reading your pages, imagining what it would sound like. And I have all these notes for you on what on how it would elevate each paragraph. And I just make it would work really well. I also don't love, and this is a personal me thing, the whole like, she is saying this to, she's doing this to make up for what she did to him. And she's sorry. I think it's fine for her to have that mentality. The I'm sorry. And I would like to make it up to you because she's a human being and she's, you know, a good person and she loves her husband. That's great. But could, it, could we also get more, like more layers of emotion? Like I want it to be like, I want a rage and, and, and anger and, and like, maybe even like, look, I had to do this. Like I justifying herself, like leaning into more of that. Cause I do think it's there, but you're, their emotions exist in, in layers, right? And the layer at the very top right now is her being sorry. And I don't want that. I want the I'm sorry to be like maybe three layers deep, right? Like I want the on surface emotion to be like, hey, I had to do this. You don't understand, but here's why. And after reading this, you will understand. Is that making sense so far? Yeah, I can imagine that being more powerful for sure. Yeah, and also like funner to read. Just, you <laughs> know, you- like I don't want this woman to be apologetic. Like <laughs> at least not fully apologetic. Anyway, yeah. line notes. First page: busted lungs and a billion other problems. Just don't don't write a billion other problems. Just sit, just use specificity as well. I would not start with dialogue. I would start with voice. Starting with dialogue just. of the time is not the right way to start something. You can keep the scene. The scene is actually working. And I went back and forth on this as I read this, but it's, it's, it's working. I think you're starting in the right place, but I would start with, with internal, internal voice. And again, if she were writing uh, a letter or whatever story to, is it David? David, right? Uh, She's writing to Nick, actually. David is the husband, but she's writing to Nick who we're going to meet later on. (sighs) Even better. So then, so then, but again, we wouldn't know the name. It would just be you, right? Like you. So that's even better. Oh my God. That, that just makes my idea even better. My idea is very good. I'm, I'm complimenting myself <laughs> as you can see, but like, imagine like 
if you were to use the hybrid second person, I can envision the chapter starting with the protagonist saying something like, you always told me I was too bold and too soft. And I never thought that these things were compatible until the day that Samir or whatever, right? Like, because she was being too bold in the sense that she was obviously like considering the DNR things and everything else, but she also was too soft in the sense that she was like, nope, there's no paperwork. And then we see her resuscitate Samir after learning Anika's reaction. The protagonist continued talking to the you, right? And she could say something like, like, I told myself that you'd be proud of me for following the rules, but deep down, I knew you'd be disappointed. And I don't mean literally this, because I don't know if this matches the character. I just mean like the idea of her talking to someone and saying, you would think this, but really it was that. It just, it's such a great way to show so many layers of emotion to the story. And just the voiciness would just be really, really elevated. And I also think that it would just make the prologue make sense. Or again, remove the prologue, because that's that also works too. I don't recommend explaining in the first five pages. It's something we always say. And the easiest way to make something not be an explanation to make something just be story is to weave an emotion. The paragraph that starts with, even though I'd moved away, Samir was my longtime patient. It's all explanation. So instead, weave emotion. Be something like, you know, weave the guilt for hurting Anika. Uh, the fact that Anika was probably uh, regretting calling her, you know, because she's the one who called. And then again, like, imagine how this chapter would end. And worse than that, I promised myself that when I got back, I'd sit David down and have the talk. Oh, but then you wouldn't say you. So then I don't know if my idea works anymore. I don't know. I am thinking as I as I talk, which is never a good thing. And then I guess chapter two, when she gets home, I wanted more emotion again, because again, you're explaining, you're saying that that she was supposed to have some actual time off, but then there was a summit in Canada and he was assigned the second shift. And I'm thinking instead of explaining, share this information, but weave in emotion. So the emotion that you could weave in is, for example, she's relieved that he's not home. So they don't actually have to have the talk, right? Because they were supposed to. Or she's surprised that she's not relieved because even though she's dreading the talk, she also knows that if she doesn't have it, she'll go bananas or something. I don't know. I will shut up now so you can tell me what you think about all this because I know I'm like, here's a vision for your story and it's not my story, it's yours. Just just on that, um, another great book to read with that is Miriam Taves' Fight Night. The whole book is a letter supposedly from this little girl Swift to her father who has disappeared. And the you is only referred to occasionally. You forget that it's actually that she's addressing her father throughout. But I like Cece's idea, especially if the reader doesn't know who she's addressing. If they make the assumption that it's her husband and it turns out to be somebody else, I really like that. Before we go to you, Liz, Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add there? I just wanted to say I really liked that you opened the chapter one with like a really morally ambiguous choice. I think that sets the tone really well. So I like that choice that you made to kind of set us up for making tough choices. I really like that. Yeah, because that as well reveals so much about character, right? Somebody being put in that position. And it'll matter so much more when she's caring for the president, right? So it's just great. It's a perfect place to start. Yeah, it already tells us so much about her before we get to the high stakes president part. Okay, Liz, do you have questions for us or do you have replies that you'd like to give us? It's so funny, Cece, that you were talking about that hybrid second voice and writing it as a letter. That's how I originally had it written. And I changed it because I thought I wasn't doing a very good job. <laughs> but maybe what I needed to do was lean into it more and go full full pelt with doing it. I think I was kind of dipping my toe in and not doing it fully. Um, Sometimes the best way to write hybrid second person is to actually write it in the first person and then weave in the use 
afterwards. It's, it probably sounds like the most non-organic way to do it. But if you start with the you, sometimes authors get way too fixated on the you and they lose track of the story itself. And I'm telling you, it's one of those things that layering in is easier than writing out from the outset for, for a lot of people anyway. Okay. Also, if authors begin like that from the outset, a lot of the story becomes telling, you know, just telling this character something as opposed to the story unfolding organically. So I definitely agree with CCS to as to that approach. It may just be going back with that you lens and then filtering it in. Which is all to say that you did not waste any time by switching back. Like you had to write it like this in order to nail second person hybrid if that is a choice you decide to make. Yeah. And I do like that idea, especially because it, you know, I won't give any spoilers. I know you don't like the spoilers, but it really brings things together at the end with the last few scenes. I think it would work really well. I just wasn't doing it very well initially. But I think now as well, I have, now that I've finished the draft to a certain point, I know the characters so much better. I didn't really understand the relationship between Mel and who she's writing to at the beginning. So it was kind of awkward, but I know them better now. So I'm going to give it a shot. Another great book that did that well was Jill Santopolo's The Light We Lost. We've also had Jill on the podcast. And throughout that book, she's talking to this you person and you don't know who, you know, you, you know who it is, but you don't know the context as to why she's speaking to him. And then you find that out at the end as well. So that's also a great book for you to read just to see how that kind of hybrid view is, is done. And the context changes all the emotion in that book. And because we assume it's like a situation where she's just talking to this, the guy she loves, but then it's yes, but it's way more dramatic. And so these are all great suggestions. Yes. Great. Thank you. I also appreciate the suggestions for where to add emotion because I do think that's, I don't always go full in there. So I appreciate um, you highlighting those places. It is the secret weapon of all books. I'm telling you, you weave in the right emotion in the right moment. Everything, the readers forgive anything as long as you weave in proper emotion. Do you have any questions that you can think of now, Liz, while you have us? Yeah. The one, one thing that I was worried with was I felt like I, I know how to put a sentence together okay I wasn't sure if the chapters had enough drive if they created enough curiosity for the reader to keep turning the page so what are your thoughts on that chapter one definitely did like you started with a like a high stake situation that wasn't like I always say like don't make it about the central arc in the beginning we don't know the character yet you know give them a small goal but that one that matters one that's tied to the larger arc but that isn't the larger arc you did it you followed all the rules like I don't know if you went to Carly Carly's webinar but writing the five pages we did it together like it, you're, you're literally checking all the boxes that we talked about so it was absolutely excellent can't tell you whether I would have kept on reading past chapter two because all we got was a paragraph right. but I can tell you that I really want to read more and I want you to send me this when it's ready please yay and this is an instance where the prologue works so for our listeners we're not always anti-prologue and this is like the third time that the prologue has worked like like honestly people you can't say that we don't like prologues anymore because we're like totally pro the right prologue okay so that brings us to the end of today's episode it was wonderful having you on the show list thanks so much for joining us and now we're going to today's guest I'd like to tell you a few exciting things that we've got coming up. All of our Kofi supporters will have access to additional exclusive content. Each week, they'll see the written critique provided by Carly, Cece, or myself to one of the writers whose work will appear on the podcast. And those who support us on Kofi on a monthly basis will get access to even more additional critiques from that week's episode. Now, the written critiques offer 
additional information that isn't discussed on the podcast. It's additional observations, perhaps line edits, etc., that every writer can learn from. Now, if you want to support us on Kofi, head to the podcast page on my website, biancamaray.com, and there's a sign up button there. And then don't forget about our upcoming The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat in January. We have an amazing lineup of world renowned writing experts, including Lisa Cron from Story Genius. Jessica Brody, Save the Cat, Writes a Novel, Courtney Mom from Before and After the Book Deal, Valerie Francis, who's an accredited editor in the Story Grid Method. We also have Sally Kim, who's one of the most amazing editors in the world, who'll be chatting with all of us. And we have Britt Bennett, who is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Vanishing Half. This is not a lineup you want to miss. The retreat will have 16 hours of jam-packed content, which is the equivalent of signing up for an eight-week writing course where each class is two hours per week. But even if you signed up for a class like that, you'd have one instructor as opposed to industry experts whose brains you'll be able to pick after their presentations. And then besides the fabulous guests, we'll be offering writing software discounts to our delegates, as well as the chance to win a amazing prizes and then we've set up the shit no one tells you about writing book club which cc will be running four times a year in which we'll not just be reading a book together but unpacking it as writers in terms of elements of craft and those who sign up as delegates will automatically get access to that book club so if you're interested in that go to the website it's under the courses and retreats page and sign up for that we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. 
The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Today's guest is one of the world's best loved authors, selling more than 178 million copies of his 32 books. His first bestseller was Eye of the Needle, a spy story set in the Second World War. In 1989, The Pillars of the Earth was published and has since become his most popular novel. It reached number one on bestseller lists around the world and was an Oprah's book club pick. Its sequels, World Without End and A Column of Fire, proved equally popular and the Kingsbridge series has sold more than 40 million copies worldwide. Can you imagine? He lives in Hertfordshire, England with his wife, Barbara. Between them, they have five children, six grandchildren, and two Labradors. It's my pleasure to welcome one of the greatest authors in the world today, Ken Follett. Ken, welcome to the show. I'm fangirling hard, both as a reader and as a writer. It's such an honor to get to chat to you today. Thanks for taking the time out. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Right. So though you became a household name in 1989 for your doorstopper, Pillars of the Earth, about the building of a cathedral in 12th century England, and further cemented your reputation as a master of historical fiction with the sweeping Century Trilogy, which for our readers follows five families from World War II into the 1980s. Your tales of spycraft are first what put you on the literary map with the amazing success you had for The Eye of the Needle. So your new novel, Never, is both a departure and a return for you. Yes, indeed. And um, 
you know, I love both genres. I like spy stories uh, and I like historical novels. Uh, and really what matters for me is that feeling I get when I get a really good idea, that feeling I get, this is going to be great. And I, I can't wait to get started on it. So really, I don't, I'm not guided by considerations of genre. I'm just guided by what I think is going to be terrific. And when I thought of this, the story for Never, that's how I felt. I, I felt this is going to be terrific. <laughs> what it boils down to is a good story well told, uh, which you're obviously the master of. Do you never find that the story, when it's in your mind, is more magical and more amazing than it ever is once you start putting pen to paper or hand to keyboard? Because for me and so many writers I chat with, the idea when it's just an idea is perfect. And then come the limitations of language and et cetera. Or is that never the case for you? Well, there's something in that. But, but you know, I mean, that's what you have to focus on, isn't it? And when that happens and when you write a scene and you think to yourself, I thought this scene was going to be better than that, then you, you, you just have to do it again. And you have to think, what was it when I dreamed this up? What was it that I thought would be so great about the scene? And um, why have I failed to put that in what I've just written? And you can't, I mean, you can't let something like that pass because then you'll end up with the, with the dull book. So when you get that feeling, there's no point going on and writing the next scene. Uh, or certainly not for me, because I will just be thinking about the, the last scene all the time. So you've just got to confront it head on. You know, let's say, let's say we've got a scene in which two people have an argument and it's a it's a bitter argument. It's rancorous. But you've written it and they just seem to be swapping words and, and swapping insults. And probably what's wrong, if that's, a, that look, that's looking dull, in, in my work anyway, probably what's wrong is that I haven't said enough about how they're feeling. Because every accusation and every riposte, somebody will say something in this argument, somebody's going to say something mean. Before the other person responds, you have to say how he or she is feeling about it. And they may, they might be, they might be a bit scared, a bit bullied by this other person, or they might be indignant about what's being said, or or they might have a horrible feeling that it might be true what's being. There are lots and lots of possibilities. And a scene like that, when you've written the dialogue, you've only just started, and what you've really got to write is the emotion in the story. You've got to write about how people about people's feelings and how those feelings are driving them on. And for our listeners, this ties back time and again to what CC says. We have agents on the podcast who read listeners' query letters and opening pages to give them critique so that when they go out on submission to agents, they stand a really good chance. And this is something we're saying on the podcast time and again, is that emotionality and interiority are so incredibly important. Otherwise, you have two talking heads who are puppets saying the stuff you imagine them saying, but what Ken just said is so important because how they're feeling is going to dictate what they say. So I absolutely love that that Ken said that. So there's so much in this book to unpack, Ken, but because we're a writing podcast, because our listeners are emerging writers, we focus on your process, elements of craft, and then publishing itself. So that's where I'm going to do my deep dive today. Now, I am first fascinated by your research process because I know that with Fall of Giants, you said you hired eight historians to read your first draft. These included experts on America, Russia, and Germany, because you take such pride in the accuracy of your historical fiction. Could you take us through the research process involved in this novel in Never? Well, it's, it's, 
I certainly can. It's very similar to the research for Fall of Giants. I begin by reading a lot of books. Sometimes I interview people. Actually, for never, I did quite a lot of interviews because I, I, I was able to talk to people who are at the top of international politics and diplomacy. I, I know one or two people and I was able to get uh, introductions and so on. So I did. I, I interviewed an ex-prime minister of the UK, Gordon Brown. Uh, I interviewed Sir Kim Darroch, who was Britain's ambassador to Washington. Uh, and I interviewed Cathy Ashton, Baroness Ashton, who was the European High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security for many years. So that was really, that was an important start because I could say to them, look, this is the story I'm planning to write. Do you think it could happen? You know, I could just ask them just like that. And and they would, you know, and they would talk to me about it. So that's important. Interviews, books, maps, pictures, film if it's available. But a key element, as you just mentioned, is that when I've written the first draft, I show it to experts. And it's generally six, seven, or eight. In this case, uh, it was some of those people that I'd interviewed who are at the top, and, and some academics who study international affairs, people who study China, people who study military comparisons. And then, so they get the first draft. And, and I, when I do this, I pay them, by the way. Um, and I, of course, when I was an emergent writer, I didn't have the money to do that. But now I do. And I pay them quite well. And they read the first draft and they give me a report and they they tell me things that I've done wrong. They may say, you what happens in chapter three could never happen in real life. So that's but that's only the beginning, because I have a discussion with them there. I say, okay, why? And is there another way that I could do this part of the story and and still have this this plot link without offending against reality. So I they, I get them involved in a discussion and actually they enjoy that um, because it's new to them. You know, the process of creating great stories is a new thing for them. And most of them get it. I occasionally come across, you know, a professor who is just incapable of indulging in <laughs> speculation <laughs> about what could happen in the novel. But most of the time they're great about it. And um, that's a really important part of my process because it, it, it gives me confidence that I have written something that could really happen. And and that's so important. You know, it's relatively easy to put your characters in dangerous situations. Raymond Chandler famously said, when in doubt, have a man come through the door with a gun in his hand, which is which is hyperbolic. But still, it, it's easy to do that. Um, but for the reader to feel the suspense, it has to seem real. And so the background stuff that I put in, like, you know, the exact number of nuclear missiles that the Chinese army has, for example. And it's, it's an, you know, it's not about 300. It's, I forget, but it's 343 or something. And that gives a feeling of authenticity, which heightens the suspense. So, so I mean, it's, it, it, that's why I'm so uh, particular about the research and the factual background. As, as everybody knows, once you've done the research, you've got to be careful not to try and put all of it into the book because <laughs> on its own, it's a bit dull. You have to select the bits of what you have found out that, that, that are vivid. You know, if it's about a city, there'll be something about that city, which, is, which isn't true of any other city in the world. And that's the one that you, that's the detail that you should give. Uh, and so selection is terribly important. And it's also part, and it's partly, I mean, those are the literary reasons. It's partly also because personally I started out as a newspaper reporter. And as a young reporter, 
we got in we we got in terrible trouble if we wrote things that weren't right and they got into the paper and um you know we were we would be carpeted you in I, my first newspaper was the south wales echo in cardiff and um if if we spelt somebody's name wrong that person would phone the editor and the editor would take the call and he would say, Follett, you've got somebody's. And of course, newspaper people swear a lot. So I can't. <laughs> exactly. you, you, you've got somebody's name wrong. And the, what the older guys would say to us is if you get if you can't get their name right, they'll think that you can't get anything right. And that, that's the logic of it. So it makes a lot of sense to be very, very particular about these things. Absolutely. And, and you've said two things there that I want to point out for our listeners. One is plausibility. You know, um, you can expect your readers to suspend disbelief only so far. And you, it's your job to create a plot or a scenario that's plausible. And certainly speaking to experts will help. Now, for the rest of us, we will never have access to prime ministers, etc., as our um, reference points. But certainly there are people out there who've got tons of knowledge who are desperate to share it with a creative person. We all love showing off what we know. So don't be intimidated to reach out to people. And Ken, something else you said now is, is another question I have, because you have tons of research. And like you say, you have to be careful not to put it all in there. You don't want the novel to feel like a textbook or exposition heavy, but you convey so much information in each of your scenes because there are things the reader needs to know about the political climate in Chad and they don't know this and you need them to know this and you don't want to give it to us as an information dump. Now, tons of times writers handle this so clumsily. They give you this background, but it reads like an info dump. And even when writers do it in dialogue, it sounds like an info dump. It's like, this is information we want the reader to have. So we're going to have these characters having this discussion. So what is your advice for our listeners? How is it that you manage to integrate that so organically so that your reader learns as they are being entertained? Well, um, if you write a scene in which a great deal of information is given to the reader and it seems like uh, you've used a very good phrase there, information dump. Well, one thing, first of all, uh, my first advice would be split it up. You don't have to give the reader all that's in. And I really like, to do this inform informative stuff in one sentence. And then, you know, in four pages time, you can give them another sentence and they won't find it burdensome. So that's one way to do it. You can, I'm trying to think of an example. You could talk about, let's say, um, what weapons the North Koreans have, and you could just give one sentence. You just something says, okay, as far as we can tell, they have about 50 nuclear warheads. And then um, and a few pages later, you could say, well, some of their warheads are on intercontinental ballistic missiles and some are on short-range missiles. Now, that's easily digestible. If you put those two sentences together, it comes a bit less. To, and if you put three or four of them together, you've got a boring bit. And I hate boring bits. I hate them in my books and in other people's books. So splitting up is, is one thing. And the other thing is put it in a conflict situation. Don't have two people giving each other information. Have two people arguing saying, you know, you could never, you could, you could never do this um, because you would lose the battle. And the other person would say, no, they wouldn't lose the battle because actually they have anti-missile defenses. And then so they could have an, so if two people have an argument and they cite facts to prove one another wrong, especially if there's an undercurrent of hostility between the two of them anyway, you've actually got a dramatic scene in which information is exchanged in a way that won't feel like information exchange. 
Excellent suggestion there. And as well, if you have characters sharing information in volatile situations where the stakes are high. So I noticed a few times where you would have one character who has knowledge, another character who needs that knowledge. But as a, in, instead of them just kind of sitting across the table from each other at Starbucks, there's this tension to the scene because we know something terrible is about to happen and this person needs this information. So that's a great way as well. But constantly upping the stakes, I feel like, you know, you're, you're um, creating, a, a, like you say, a tense scene in which the sharing of information becomes so integral to what's happening in that scene that the scene can't move forward without that information being shared, which is phenomenal as well. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to do it too. Where, so, you know, um, I like where guns are involved, I quite like to, to say um, a little bit about the gun, but uh, uh, it's it's great if somebody says. In, in I did this in um, Lie Down with Lions. Um, young one of the a young female character who wasn't any kind of soldier was handed a gun uh, right at the end, the big climax, and and you know, and she's told if any of those guys move, shoot them, and she says, "Where's the safety catch?" Now, normally, this is a piece of mundane detail about a firearm, isn't it? But she's desperate. She has to know. So the, the position of the safety catch at that point becomes part of the drama. So, yeah, I mean, you and I have the you and I are on the same page about this. Yeah. And also, like, because it's a high tense situation, she if she was sitting being handed the gun in a Starbucks, OK, maybe not because that would freak everyone out. If she was being handed <laughs> the gun in, in a quiet place, she'd have time to turn the gun over and look at it. But when it's this high drama situation and your brain's not particularly working very well because it's no. dealing with so much information at once. Of course, there's like an element of panic to the situation as well. Uh, something else is, Ken, how do you handle so many different storylines and so many different POVs and all the information you need? So in this book, there were, there were I think, five. Were there five different POVs? I think there were. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, third person close, which is a wonderful, wonderful point of view to really get us close to people without having to change the voice in terms of five first person narratives. And it adds cohesion to the whole story. But how do you plot this all out? Because you started writing ages ago. Nowadays, there's software like Eon Timeline and Scrivener and all kinds of things. Have you started to use this kind of software that makes it easier for you? Or do you go back to just using scene cards? What's what's your secret to that? Well, I write an outline and I've done this. The first time I did that was for Eye of the Needle and that was my first successful book. I had written 10 unsuccessful books before then. Uh, and I so I wrote an outline and I've continued to do that. And I now spend up to a year on the outline. I do research at the same time because obviously the two of them go together. The research tells me what's possible and also gives me ideas for further story turns. Um, but, the, but that outline uh, is key to me. And right now here where I work, I've got three screens and I write on the one in front of me and on, on the one on the left is my outline. So I have that continuously in front of me all the time I'm writing the story. One Now, there's one particular thing that I try very hard to do, or perhaps I should say there's one thing I try hard to avoid. I hate it when you have an opening chapter, a good opening chapter in a novel, and chapter two cuts to something that seems completely unrelated. None of the same people, it's not in the same place, the issues are different, and you've got it. It's like starting a new novel all over again. And um, much better, you can do that if the chapter in the chapter two scene, they start 
by discussing what's happened in chapter one. They, they're not there, um, but they are their characters. They know the characters or they're connected with them some way. And so something dramatic happens in chapter one. And in chapter two, you've got somebody saying, did you see what happened? What are we going to do about that? And now, even if they are, it's, it's a new it's a new story strand. Nevertheless, there's that connection. And you don't think, oh, my God, I've got to learn about another bunch of people now. You're, because you're into it. It's, it's, it's a continuous narrative. These are new people, but they're, it's the same story. And that works. I think that, much, that works much better. It's a bit more difficult to do. You've got to spend more time thinking about it. It's very easy just to cut to a totally different scene. But it's not as good. It's much better if you make a connection that's immediately obvious to the reader and, and continues the reader's interest in what happened in chapter one, rather than cutting it off and making the reader start again from zero. Genius suggestion. So for those of you who are writing multiple POV novels or novels with multiple timelines, this is a wonderful way to have this golden thread stitched through your novel so that, like Ken says, it doesn't feel like these people are completely disconnected or disjointed. It feels like there's some continuity to the story. Ken, for our last few minutes before I have to let you go, could we talk about the empathy that's required to be a historical novelist rather than a historian? And pretty much the empathy that's required to be a writer in general and how you go about bringing kind of these abstract political situations happening in other parts of the world, making them so real and so immediate to your reader? Well, there are two things you have to bear in mind. Clearly, uh, writing about people in the Middle Ages or people living in the desert in North Africa, you're dealing with people whose lives are completely different from your own, from my own and 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 from the lives of most readers too. And that's part of the attraction. That's one of the things we like. But you have to remember that at the most fundamental level, people are the same in all places and at all times. So, you know, in the Middle Ages, what were people worried about in the Middle Ages? Well, they worried about uh, love and sex and family, and they worried about money and work, and they worried about violence and war. These are the very fundamental things that are that are basic to our lives whenever and wherever we live. And so you have to integrate those two things. You, you have to bring in what's strange and different because that's interesting and it's fun. And you have to focus on the fundamental things. I often think my books are very popular in Brazil. And, you know, so the Brazilians are reading about the building of a cathedral in medieval England. Or I've got a book about a family of bankers in London in the Victorian era. Um, called A Dangerous Fortune. And I do think, okay, these books are being read and, and clearly enjoyed because they sell quite well. People in Brazil and China and India. And uh, isn't that isn't that marvellous? But I think that's the secret. I think the secret is, is to represent what's different accurately and in an interesting way, but also to focus on what all human beings have in common. Yeah, the commonalities, the shared humanity is what people connect with. And as a South African, I can tell you that you are huge in South Africa as well. It probably doesn't show in the sales because there's a very small book buying community in South Africa because it is a very poor country. But yeah, very popular there as well. So Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was an absolute joy. I know there are so many insights that our listeners will take away from it. For our listeners, get Ken's latest novel. It's called Never. You will not regret reading it. Uh, and think about everything he's told us as you are reading it and apply it to your own work in progress. Thank you so much, Ken. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you.
And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.